invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10 this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, and once you've found that, I invite you to stand out of the respect for the reading of God's Word as we direct our attention to the 10th chapter of 2 Corinthians this morning. Second Corinthians chapter 10, we'll begin our reading in the first verse, and we'll read the first six verses. This is the word of the Lord. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who have suspected us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, And take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Amen. You may be seated. Join me now as we have a word of prayer together. Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the mission that you have given to us as your church to make disciples. And we praise you that you have not left us without weapons for our warfare but you have divinely given us divine weapons that have power to destroy strongholds. Teach us this morning, we pray, from your word. In Christ's name, amen. The Bible uses several different kinds of metaphors to describe our lives as Christians. It describes us, for example, as pilgrims and exiles. It describes us as a priesthood. It describes us as a holy nation and as a building. It describes us like farmers and ambassadors and athletes. But perhaps one of the most prevalent images of our lives as Christians is one of warfare. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, mixes two of these metaphors when he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. In 1 Timothy 1, 18, he says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. And this, of course, is the image that Paul has chosen to use here in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 to describe Christian ministry. It is warfare. Now, of course, if you think about Paul's history with this problematic church, 
it's probably not a surprise that he would describe his ministry to them as warfare. The Corinthian church is well known for all of its troubles that Paul had to confront in very direct ways. After he planted this church, he wrote them one letter confronting their sin before even the letter that we know as 1 Corinthians. And then he wrote 1 Corinthians, again, with very strong language of confrontation. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 21, he said, What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with, a lo- or with love and a spirit of gentleness? And then, when the people refused to repent after his first letter, Paul finally did go to Corinth with a rod, which he refers to in 2 Corinthians 2.1 as a painful visit. But that visit was unsuccessful, with someone in the church even openly opposing him. So Paul left discouraged, but then he wrote what seems to be his most confrontational letter of all, sometimes called his severe letter, which we don't have, he sent that letter with Titus to Corinth, and finally, as a result of that severe letter, most of the congregation of Corinth repented. But a minority of troublemakers were still in the church, those who were in fact using the failure of Paul's first visit and the severity of his letter to accuse him of fleshly methods and motives. He says this in verse 3, and even the accusation in verse 1 is likely what Paul is quoting when he says, I who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. They were accusing him of cowardice, hiding behind his writing when in, in person he was weak. And so Paul now is about to engage in some more warfare in the final three chapters of 2 Corinthians directed against these remaining false teachers. He had alluded already to these false teachers and their accusations to him previously in the book in several different places. The false teachers were accusing him of peddling the word of using fleshly methods to do ministry, and so Paul was responding by defending his ministry. And so he had alluded to them and briefly addressed some of their accusations, but most of the letter up to this point had been addressing the majority within the church who had already repented, and Paul wanted to admonish them to complete their repentance, to complete their obedience, as he says earlier in the book. But now, beginning in chapter 10, Paul is abruptly changing focus and beginning these last three chapters of very direct confrontation against these false teachers. This change of topics in chapter 10 is so abrupt that some scholars argue that this was a different letter that was appended on to the first nine chapters, but it's not. He's already alluded to these false teachers. He's already addressed their accusations somewhat, but now he is setting his sights directly against them in the final three chapters. And so what this section of chapter 10, the first six verses, amounts to is really a summary of Paul's battle strategy. It is a summary of battle strategy for Christian warfare. 
Paul explains to this church exactly what his war strategy is so that the faithful will indeed remain faithful and perhaps even fight with him and as a warning to these false teachers to be ready for what is coming and to repent before it is too late. And so in describing this war strategy, Paul gives us today an important battle plan for how we, even in our day, ought to engage in the war that we have set before us as well. Paul begins this section with a phrase that we might just be tempted to skip over, but the emphasis with which he places his opening is notable. Look at the first phrase of verse 1. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you. Paul has defended his ministry in the previous nine chapters, and he's about to engage in some very direct rebuke against the remaining minority in the Corinthian church who are still sowing discord. And so he begins by establishing his authority. I, Paul, myself. Now, of course, that's not the same as if I began my message this morning with, I, Scott, myself, entreat you. Paul was an apostle, and as an apostle, Paul had the delegated authority of Jesus Christ himself. With these words, Paul is asserting his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And this is particularly important for Paul in the progress of his letter here, because the very people that he is about to confront in the Corinthian church claimed to be apostles themselves. In fact, they, they claimed to be super apostles, as Paul says in chapter 11. But they were false apostles nonetheless. They were challenging Paul's authority as an apostle. They, they were false apostles at minimum because they did not satisfy the biblical requirements of an apostle. When the apostles of Jesus were choosing a replacement for Judas in Acts chapter 1, Peter lists two requirements of an apostle. An apostle must have seen the risen Christ and he must have been appointed by Christ himself. And then third, Paul says later in this very book, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, that apostles were confirmed by signs and wonders and mighty works. Only 13 men in all of human history have met all three of those requirements, one of whom fell away, Judas, and one of whom was untimely born, as Paul describes himself in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. And so Paul is beginning this very difficult part of the letter by asserting his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the authority of his warfare. Now, there are no apostles today for the reasons that I just mentioned, but this opening does provide an important foundation for all ministry warfare, even today, because we do have apostolic authority in our day, but that apostolic authority is inscripturated in the pages of the New Testament. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 tells us that the early Christians devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They recognized the authority of the apostles' teaching, 
And then 2 Peter chapter 1 teaches us that the Holy Spirit of God carried along men like Paul and the other apostles as they wrote the scriptures such that their written words were literally breathed out by God himself, as Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 16. In fact, Peter says in that very chapter that this written revelation that we have is a more sure word than even the first-hand personal accounts of the apostles. And so, in other words, Paul is beginning his discussion of ministry warfare by asserting his authority as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and we have that same foundation for our warfare, but it's not in ourselves. The foundation for our warfare is found in the authoritative, sufficient Word of God. This is important. Because as we discuss our warfare, it is critically important that the authority of our warfare be found in the right place. The authority of our warfare is not in any man or movement. The authority of our warfare is in the inspired Word of God itself. After establishing the authority for his warfare, Paul then describes the character of the warfare that he is engaging. Notice that he begins by saying, I, Paul, myself, entreat you. Or in verse 2, he says, I beg you. Paul is about to use some very direct language, and he's about to describe the Christian life as one of warfare, but he does not start there. He entreats his readers, keep reading, by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Paul knew that he had to battle against these false teachers, against these enemies of Christ who were stirring up trouble in the church, but he didn't want to. Paul is determined to confront these false apostles directly in these last three chapters, but he begins gently. He doesn't want to have another confrontational visit He says in verse 2, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us walking according to the flesh. He is beginning gently. He doesn't want to have to boldly confront them. He's willing to do so if they don't heed his warnings, but he doesn't want to. He's beginning gently. He is saying, in effect, don't mistake my compassion for weakness. I will come with a rod if I have to, just like he had said previously in 1 Corinthians. And and he's going to have to say some very direct and hard things to the remaining minority of false teachers in the church, but he he doesn't want to do that if he doesn't have to. He would rather that they listen to his words here in these last three chapters. He would rather them repent than for him to have to make another painful visit. And what Paul displays here is an important description of what the character of our warfare ought to be as well. We ought not to be quick to look for a fight. We ought not be be quick to, to battle. Paul's warfare, as we see here, was first and foremost gentle and compassionate. And that's what our warfare should be like. Our, our instinct ought to be one of peace. 
As Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. He said to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We are in a war, but our first goal should be one of peace. It's unfortunately a very strong temptation, especially for those who are committed to the truth as we ought to be, It's a temptation to go looking for a fight, isn't it? We're tempted to just jump into battle mode the second that we see something that we disagree with or some sort of theological error. The impulse to defend truth is good and necessary, but like Paul, our first strategy ought to be one of the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Humility and treating those, begging of those who need to hear our message. And this should be especially true as we confront error and sin and problems within the church, as Paul is doing here. We ought to be willing to confront these things if we need to. We ought to be willing to stand for the truth, but we ought not to be known as confrontational people. Someone who jumps at anything that we disagree with or every little thing that we don't think is right or even someone who quickly jumps down people's throats even when what they are doing or saying is truly wrong. We ought to be known as people who first approach error and sin and problems with the meekness and gentleness of Christ, only resorting to more direct confrontation if we have to. But... Like Paul, we must be willing to stand and fight if we have to. It is a warfare. Our warfare ought to be compassionate, but it also must be courageous. Compassionate courage, courageous compassion. That ought to characterize our ministry. So the authority for our warfare, as Paul describes it here, is God's Word, And the character of our warfare ought to be compassionate courage. But then Paul moves on to a description of the warfare itself. Paul is both answering the accusations of the false apostles and describing the nature of the conflict with him, how he plans to confront them if they do not respond well to his gentle entreaty. And so if we have to fight... If we have to engage in warfare, this is the nature of our warfare. This is how we ought to fight as Paul describes it. First, he addresses their accusations. As verse 2 says, they suspect Paul of walking according to the flesh. As he alludes to throughout the letter, the false apostles were accusing him of fleshly motives and fleshly methods in his ministry. And so he's addressing their accusation of fleshly warfare here head on. But he acknowledges first that we do indeed walk in the flesh. He says in verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh. The word flesh here is just a neutral word that refers to physical, earthly existence. Paul is, in effect, saying, I am human. I am fleshly in that sense. 
In other words, we are in the world, and we are fleshly beings. There are good earthly necessities that we engage in simply by virtue of the fact that we walk in the flesh. We eat and drink. We work. We engage in commerce and physical exercise and human vocation and politics and other God-ordained earthly activities. These are good and necessary as fleshly beings who live on the earth. But, Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. We don't war according to the flesh because our war is not, at its essence, a fleshly war. The very nature of our war is not fleshly. It is a spiritual war. That is where our battle really is. Of course, it's very easy to be tempted to think otherwise because the enemies of our warfare that are most immediately apparent to us are what we can see around us. Think about Paul, for example. His opponents, in this case, were men of flesh. Even for us today, false teachers are men and women of flesh. Even more broadly, all of the attacks against Christianity that we see in our day are committed by men and women of flesh. We can see and identify our enemies, can we not? We can name them. They are false teachers like Creflo Dollar and Joyce Meyer. They are advocates of woke Christianity like Eric Mason and Thabiti Anibwile. They are atheist apologists like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. They are identifiable groups like Planned Parenthood or Black Lives Matter or LGBTQ plus activists. They are people fleshly beings in our society who want to murder babies and trans our kids. We can see them. We can identify them. We can name them. These are enemies in flesh. But ultimately, Paul is saying here, our battle is not a battle of flesh. As Paul says in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, the true enemies are not of flesh, and therefore we ought not wage war according to the flesh. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. We participate in the good, normal, common grace aspects of this earth, but when it comes to the spiritual war in which we are engaged, we do not use fleshly weapons, Paul is saying. As he says in verse 4, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. But unfortunately, as people who do walk in the flesh, we are often tempted to wage war according to the flesh. As we engage in spiritual warfare, we are tempted to use fleshly weapons. And we see this all around us among Christians today. Well-meaning Christians, even pastors who are attempting to battle truly evil people and ideologies, often fall into the trap of using fleshly methodology to do so. 
We use human ingenuity or clever fleshly methodology. Some use self-assertion or shrewd marketing or business strategies, human reason, entertainment, technology, all in a fleshly attempt to wage spiritual battles. Or we see devilish problems in our society around us, and we attempt to use worldly ideologies to battle spiritual problems, or we think that that political might will destroy our enemies. Even our measure of success in, in our warfare often becomes fleshly. We judge success by numbers, by prestige, by cultural acceptance, by political influence. All of these fleshly weapons may appear to be effective, but in reality they are weak. They may have external success, but they are not actually addressing the true spiritual enemies. We can use fleshly methods to get external conformity, but that's all we get. This was often a problem during the Middle Ages where men like Holy Roman Emperor Charlemagne forced thousands of Saxons to be baptized at the point of a sword. That achieved lots of baptisms, lots of external success, but no true conversions. Fleshly weapons yield only fleshly victories. We can build huge megachurches with business strategies and marketing techniques, but fleshly weapons achieve only fleshly victories. We can fight against evil ideologies with fleshly philosophy or fleshly political might, and we might score some points. We might achieve external fleshly results, but that's all we'll get with fleshly weapons. We're not really achieving victories. It's like trying to break through the black gate of Mordor with Nerf guns and thinking that we've succeeded because our darts hit the mark. Fleshly weapons like these may appear to be powerful, but they are nothing compared to spiritual weapons. Notice again verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Fleshly weapons might have immediate fleshly success, but spiritual weapons have divine power. Spiritual weapons have divine power, as Paul says, to destroy strongholds. They can demolish apparently impregnable fortresses against which no fleshly weapons would have a chance. The term term strongholds here is obviously a metaphor, but a metaphor of what? Well, he tells us in the next verse. Look at verse 5. What is it we're destroying? What are the strongholds? We destroy, destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. The strongholds that divine weapons have power to destroy are arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. This is why our weapons must be spiritual, because the true enemies that we fight are not flesh and blood. They are spiritual. 
arguments and opinions, what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 3.19, the wisdom of this world. Defeating fleshly enemies requires fleshly enemies, but defeating spiritual, or defeating fleshly enemies requires fleshly weapons, but defeating spiritual enemies requires spiritual weapons. These enemies against which we fight are in the realm of ideas, arguments, lofty opinions. We need to remember that our enemies are not really Creflo Dollar and Joyce Meyer, but prosperity gospel arguments. Our enemies are not really Eric Mason and Thabiti Animwile, but woke ideology. Not really Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens, but lofty atheistic opinions. Not really people who want to kill babies and trans kids. Our enemies are really arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. That's where our enemies really lie. The enemies of our warfare are not really flesh and blood, but ideas. It is these ideas raised against the knowledge of God that dominate our society today. When we look around us and we see the secularism and rampant atheism and the murder of babies and the transing of kids, we need to learn to recognize that ultimately... The enemies there are not the external atrocities, although they are terrible. The true, fundamental, root enemies are arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. When you're talking with a neighbor or someone at work and and what they are saying to you is against Christ, we, we need to be careful not to see that person as our ultimate enemy, but rather the true enemy is ideas raised against the knowledge of God. So we don't attack the person with fleshly weapons, we attack the ideas. And this is why we need divine weapons. Because with divine weapons, we are actually able to destroy these ideological strongholds. We destroy the real enemies, the spiritual ideas raised against the knowledge of God. Let me give you just one practical example of this. When Bobby McQuarrie goes to an abortion mill with the goal of literally saving innocent flesh, what weapons does he use? He doesn't bomb the abortion mill. He doesn't use physical force. He doesn't fight with fleshly weapons. What does he do? He preaches the Word of God. He reasons with people from the Word of God. These are divine, spiritual weapons that have the power to destroy strongholds. Now, don't misunderstand me. Fleshly weapons are sometimes necessary to fight fleshly battles. The Bible does not teach passivism. Tomorrow we celebrate Memorial Day in our nation and we praise God for those who defend and protect us in our nation. Sometimes we need fleshly weapons. If sometimes threatens the flesh of those in your family or under your care, you take up fleshly weapons and you defend them. We do walk in the flesh. Sometimes that is necessary. But we must not mistake that 
for our spiritual warfare and the use of divine weapons to destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God. With divine weapons, as Paul continues to say in verse 5, we can take every thought captive to obey Christ. Notice the enemies that we're taking captive here. It's not fleshly captives. It's ideological captives. It is thought captives. Through the use of spiritual divine weapons, we take captives for Christ. We assert Christ's lordship over them, but not over fleshly people, not over false teachers or authors, not over activists or politicians, not over magistrates and nations, we assert Christ's lordship over arguments and opinions and thoughts. We wield spiritual weapons of Christ's lordship over spiritual enemies. And so what then are these spiritual divine weapons that destroy arguments and lofty opinions and take thoughts captives? It's very important to emphasize that even though we might recognize that our enemies are truly in the realm of ideas, still we must not be tempted to battle thoughts and ideas with worldly weapons. We can't battle false human philosophies with other human philosophies. Remember the way that Paul opened the section. He emphasized his apostolic authority. He is emphasizing that the spiritual weapons we employ in this spiritual warfare must be derived from the authoritative word of God. So many today are tempted to question whether the Bible is really sufficient to give us the weapons we need to destroy false ideas. I mean, is the Bible really enough to fight unbelief? in our society around us? Maybe we need human reason or sophisticated philosophical arguments and scientific evidence to prove the existence of God to skeptics in ways that the Bible can't because they don't really even believe the Bible. Or is the Bible really enough to fight against prejudice and injustice in our day? Maybe we need analytical tools like critical theory, which has been designed to combat injustice in ways that the Bible is not really able to do. No, remember where Paul began. The foundational authority of our warfare is the Word of God, and the Word of God is sufficient as the source of our weapons of warfare. And indeed, the sufficient word gives us our weapons. We don't have to go looking anywhere else. The Bible tells us. In Ephesians 6, after Paul tells us that we do not wage war according to flesh and blood, he tells us what our weapons for our weapons are. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, now here are the weapons, here's the armor, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. 
And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. You see, we have already been equipped with the divine spiritual weapons that we need. Spiritual virtues like faith and righteousness and truth and our very salvation itself is our armor. And not only must we receive our weapons from the Word of God, the Bible itself is a living and active sword. Our divine spiritual weapons are really what we refer to as the ordinary means of grace. The Word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Word of God is exactly the weapon that we need to battle thoughts and take them captive for Christ. Think about how Paul himself combated unbelief in his ministry. Acts chapter 17 verse 2 says, And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. This is exactly what Paul is defending. He is saying, I did not come to you with fleshly weapons. I did not come to you with worldly wisdom. I did not come with clever methods. I did not come with physical force. I reasoned from the Scriptures. He says this earlier in 2 Corinthians in chapter 6. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, he said, We put no obstacles in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, here's the ministry, here is the display of spiritual divine weapons. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, notice this, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Folks, these are the weapons that we must use in the battle. Because what we're after is not simply external victory. We could win battles, quote-unquote, with fleshly weapons. We could score points. We could gain external victory. We could take people physically captive with fleshly weapons or force them into conformity at the point of a sword. But that is not our goal. Our goal is to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Submission to Christ is what we're after. Obedience to Christ. Voluntary submission. What we're after is the salvation of souls and the sanctification of Christians. We're not just aiming at external conformity. We are looking at internal obedience. That's our goal. 
We need to use spiritual weapons because it is a spiritual mission that we have been tasked with by Jesus Christ himself. Make disciples is our mission. And we do this through gospel preaching, through baptizing new believers and joining them to local churches where then their thoughts are progressively taken captive to obey Christ as they are disciplined with the ordinary means of grace, these spiritual weapons that have divine power to destroy strongholds. And so these spiritual weapons of the Word destroy unbelief. And that leads to salvation, and then these same spiritual weapons are what continue to progressively take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. This is Christian sanctification. And this is why it is so essential that our focus be kept on the clear, sustained explanation and exposition of God's thinking. The teaching and preaching of the Word of God is what we need. If we recognize that our enemy is really unbiblical thinking, then our primary weapon will be the careful, sustained preaching and explanation of God's thinking. So many Christians today are ignorant of even the most basic doctrines of the Christian faith. May that not be us. No wonder so many Christians today are easy prey to devilish thinking. We need God's thinking. We need the thinking that is communicated in the inspired and authoritative word of God. As Luther so beautifully expresses in his wonderful hymn, Mighty Fortress, But though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Why? One little word will fell him. If you're concerned by the way that godless ideology is plaguing our society, then come to church. This is where the weapons are. Our primary battlefield is not in the political sphere or among the elite culture makers. Our primary battlefield is what we do when we gather as the church, the ordinary means of grace, preaching, prayer, singing, scripture reading, baptism, the Lord's table. These are the weapons of our warfare. This is our battlefield. Worship is warfare. If you want to battle the real enemies, don't use fleshly weapons. Don't trust in philosophy. Don't trust in politics. Don't trust in clever marketing techniques. Trust in the divine spiritual weapons of the Word. That Word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindreds go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That's the nature of our warfare. 
And finally, as Paul says in verse 6, one of those spiritual weapons given to the church for this battle is church discipline. Look at what he says. Being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. That phrase, your obedience is complete, refers to the majority of the church that had already repented. But Paul had said earlier in chapter 2, verse 9, that one of the reasons for his writing this letter was to test them, was to know whether they are truly obedient in everything. He wanted to make sure that, that they were following through with their repentance, And in particular, that they were rejecting these false teachers that had begun to stir up trouble. But he's saying here that once he has determined that their obedience is complete, he could set his sights on the disobedient false teachers. And if they do not heed Paul's words and repent, then they must be punished. This is not fleshly punishment. This is divine punishment. Put them out of the church is the New Testament command. And so, as Paul argues here in this text, though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. Why? Because the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And at the end of the day, our goal is that we will be able to describe our lives as Paul did in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, when he said, I have fought the good fight of faith. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. This is the kind of people we ought to be striving to be. Let us be people willing to fight, willing to stand willing to defend the truth, willing to fight against spiritual enemies, willing to fight the spiritual battles that we have been called to fight with compassionate courage, employing the divine spiritual weapons of the Word. This is the task that God has given to us. This is the mission that we have been tasked to complete. Oh, that we would accomplish the mission and fight the battle that we have been given by Jesus Christ.